kind of the prophet, prophecy of Isaiah. And this morning's study is entitled, Six Woes on Contemporary Israel. Now we've been asked to consider as an introduction to his study this morning, Isaiah chapter 28. And we'll ask our brother Peter Middlemas to come forward and read Isaiah chapter 28. Study is <coughs> six woes on contemporary Israel. And we'll ask our brother first to come forward now. We have for consideration this morning a very wonderful section of Isaiah's prophecy. The only trouble is that we haven't the time to thoroughly explore it. But you will find that if you do this yourself, that you will find remarkable gems of wisdom in this particular section of his prophecy. We have on the uh, transparency here six woes on contemporary, history, uh, on contemporary Israel which takes us to chapter 33, verse 24. But on our uh, transparency here, there's a little discrepancy that often occurs on my dis- transparencies, and we've got seven ways on uh, contemporary history, uh, Israel. But in fact, there are six. We have placed here the seventh, which is woe to Idumea, because really that forms a section of this part of Isaiah's prophecy. Now what he is doing in these sections here is pouring out woes upon Israel because of their apostasy at that particular time. When you come to this one here, woe to the Assyrian spoiler, he pronounces a woe against the Assyrian himself, the one that of course is going to bring trouble upon Israel. And that's involved in these six woes. And then you will find in chapters 34 and 35 that he deals with all nations. And he does it under the, uh, under the theme of the Idumean. But that embraces all nations. And it shows that all nations are then going to be dealt with. So that you see, as you look at that, that transparency, you see, first of all, there's going to be trouble brought upon Israel. As we know, there has been and will be. Then the Assyrian will be dealt with. As we know, he will be in the person of Gog. And then the domination of the whole world will be brought about as we have it in the 34th and 35th chapters of Isaiah. So whilst this is based upon the past in the days of Isaiah the prophet, we can see it has got an application to our day in which we're living. And even as the Assyrians shall be first dealt with, and then the whole world will be involved in the, uh, in the judgments of Almighty God, so it is laid out in Isaiah's prophecy. And if I've got time to deal with it, I want to show you how that inherent in that prophecy there, the one to Idumea, is a principle that I believe you would never have seen, but which is basic to all Paul's epistles in the New Testament. It's a remarkable statement that Isaiah takes up when he's dealing with a woe upon Idumea. But let us see once again the section of Isaiah's prophecy here. There are actually six woes on contemporary Israel. The sixth woe is poured out upon the Assyrian who's come down into the land. And then the final one, the woe to Idumea, extends out until all nations are involved. Let us just first of all go to chapter 34 and see what is taking place there. Notice the first verse and understand that this is on the basis of uh, the Assyrian who has been overthrown, as we will find in the earlier chapter, the 33rd chapter. Verse 1 says, Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and so forth. And it shows how that the the, uh, Israel will be uh, vindicated by Yahweh on that day. Now in verse 34, Come near ye nations to hear, and hearken ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that are come forth of it. What's going to happen when Gog is destroyed upon the mountains of Israel? Is not that going to draw the attention of all mankind to what has taken place? Inevitably. So here's the invitation. Come near ye nations and hear. 
even as it was, of course, in the days of Hezekiah. When the Sennacherib was destroyed upon the mountains of Israel, it drew the attention of all mankind, so that you really had an emissary from, uh, from Babylon come to Hezekiah to inquire concerning this wonder. When this happens to go, the same thing's going to happen. And Babylon's going to send uh, her messengers to find out what's happened. But Babylon is going to do no more than Babylon did in the past. And it will be necessary, of course, for the Lord Jesus Christ to extend his conquests until all mankind is brought under his rule. And that we find in that 34th uh, chapter, when all nations are invited to hear, and we read in verse uh, 5, My sword shall be bathed in heaven, behold it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. And here's another example of how Edom relates to the Gentiles as a whole. Because Idumea, of course, is Edom. And here we have the judgment upon Edom in this particular chapter. And whilst we're on it, whilst we're on this chapter, whether time gives me permission or not, I'm going to draw attention to that point that I said to you before. Now, when you come to the 35th chapter, you read this. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. I ask you, who are the them of that verse? Who are the them for whom the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad? Who's going to dwell in that particular place that in those days will blossom as the rose? You might say it's Israel. It is not Israel. It's the powers that are referred to in the previous chapter. Israel is dealt with in chapter 33. So the previous chapter, you read about the owl in verse 15. And you read about the vultures in verse 15 and you read about the wild beasts in verse 14 and you read in verse 16 seek out of the book of Yahweh and read no one of these shall fail none shall want her mate for my mouth hath commanded and his spirit hath gathered it to him and he hath cast the lot for them for whom? for these beasts and birds referred to in the previous verses and his hand hath divided it for lot he is determined where they to live He's determined where they're to go. These beasts and birds of the previous verse. And it is in relation to them that we read in chapter 35 that the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. Yahweh is going to appoint a place for them and the place will be a prosperous place. But those beasts and birds that relate to the beasts and birds that are familiar to us today, not those that we saw in the park yesterday, in the symbology of the Bible... The beasts and birds referred to here, which you find, of course, in the early chapters of Genesis, relate to the Gentile nations. And you know the statement was made in, uh, in Genesis 1 and verse 26, Have thou dominion over the beasts of the earth? Have thou dominion over the beasts of the earth? And you know those words are taken up by the Apostle Paul and they're taken up by nearly every epistle in the New Testament and shown to be incidental to the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. Genesis 1 verse 26 is contained and is found in most of the New Testament epistles. I haven't the time to develop it. If you want it, I can give it to you later on. And I can show you how that, uh, those, that statement in Genesis 1 Verse 26 was taken up by, of course, David in the 8th Psalm after he had destroyed Goliath, but is found referred to by the Apostle Paul, by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Apocalypse as being incidental to the fulfilment of the purpose of Almighty God. So that what he declared in the beginning when he made a man and a woman and there was a marriage, and he said to them, Have thou dominion, will in fact be fulfilled at the end of the purpose of God, as we see it developed in the uh, Apocalypse. And you see, here we have it here. So Idumea is destroyed. It's made a complete wilderness. And by Idumea, we mean Babylon the Great. So that in this transparency here, you have the typical Gog destroyed here, and you have the typical Babylon the, the Great destroyed in chapters 34 and 35 and the whole world brought under the domination of the Lord Jesus Christ and then you have 
the nations that Deborah the Great hold in them today, delivered from that dom domination and established in the places that God will provide for them through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. So you have a tremendously interesting section of Isaiah's prophecy here. To equal the tremendously interesting sections of Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 1 to chapter 66. Because if you were to say to me which is the most interesting, well, I don't know, they all seem to be the most interesting when I'm studying that particular section of it. Now we have a look at those sections again. And as I've told you before, in Isaiah's prophecy, uh, with every prediction of disaster or doom, there is a compensating message of hope. And you know, as far as those sections are concerned, Yahweh reveals himself in different characteristics throughout those sections. He reveals himself here in that section as the instructor, in that section as the wonderful worker, in that section as the redeemer, in that section as the gracious one, and that section as the deliverer, and there as the avenger. So whilst there are woes poured out upon contemporary Israel at that particular time, Yahweh is elevated before the people in every chapter in those particulars. So something of the character of Yahweh is revealed in the course of these woes poured out upon contemporary his, uh, Israel. Let me show them to you. First of all, we take this one, Woe on the drunkards of Ephraim and Judah. And they, of course, were the politicians of, uh, of, uh, of Ephraim and of Judah. And look at verse 1. For those that have been to Israel, have a look at verse 1. See if that is not appropriate to what you saw in the land when you visited Samaria. Verse 1 says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, flower which are on the head of the fat valleys. Now, remember Samaria, the capital? Remember how that, that hill stood up apart from all the other hills, a round hill? And remember around the top of that round hill there was built that great wall in the days of Omri and in the days of Ahab? Picture this bald hill and see that crown around it and stand far back and have a look at the hill of Samaria and see the world there that was a symbol of their power and of their pride and see it as a crown. That's how the prophet's looking at it. The crown of pride. And they look at Samaria and they see that hill as a crown because for those that haven't been to Israel, the hill of Samaria is a round hill that stands right apart from any other hill about it. It's surrounded by valleys. And there was around that round hill, there was a wall built as the defence of that city, so that when you stood a long way back, you looked at that hill and you saw, as it were, a crown, and it was a crown of pride. So, woe to the drunkards, the politicians of Ephraim and Judah, but see Yahweh as the instructor. So in verse 23 of that same chapter, Give ye ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. So that he reveals himself as the instructor. Doth the ploughman plough all day or so? Doth he open and break the clods of ground? Do you think that I'm ploughing through this field and I don't want to harvest? Do you think you can get away with what you are doing? And so he calls upon them to be instructed. Verse 26, For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. So you see, Yahweh is revealed to the people as the great instructor. And they are called upon to view him as such. Now the next woe is upon the hypocrites of Ariel. Ariel, we are told, is the city of Jerusalem. The word means the Lion of God. And Jerusalem was as the Lion of God. But it's also a word that's used for the, uh, for the, uh, the, the altar of bird offering. And you see what uh, the prophet says as he plays upon this word. He says in verse 2, I will distress Ariel, the Lion of God, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. In other words, you're going to be burnt on your own altar. You're going to be consumed on your own altar. You are as the Lion of God, but you're going to become as Ariel, as the, as the, uh, the, the fire hearth, of the bird offering altar. 
and you're going to be consumed upon that. So you see, there is woe upon Ariel. But at the same time, those that are of discretion are called upon to hearken to Yahweh, the wonderful worker. So you have in verses 13 and 14. Wherefore Yahweh said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men, therefore behold, I will proceed to do a marvellous work among this people, even a marvellous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their white men shall perish. And they are invited to hearken to Yahweh, the wonderful worker. Whilst in the previous chapter, they were told to hearken to Yahweh, the instructor. We come to the third woe, to the political schemers of Jerusalem. And there we are told to seek, or they are told, to seek Yahweh, the redeemer. So in that chapter, which is chapter 29, the latter part of chapter 29, and verses 22 to 24, we read these words. Therefore thus saith Yahweh who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale, but when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of, of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They shall sanctify his holy name in that day because, of course, at the present moment they do not. They profane that name, we are told in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, verses 21 onwards. They profane the holy name. That's the Jewish people. They profane it because they do not understand it, nor do they use it. And because they are the people of the name, because the name is named upon them, they should understand it. They should re respect it, but they do not. Therefore they profane it. But when this time comes, when he seeth his children the work of mine hands, and who are the children? But ourselves. Spiritual Israel. The work of his hands. In the midst of him. They shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Israel and fear the Elohim of Israel. So you see, they are to seek Yahweh the Redeemer. And here is another aspect, of course, of God whom we worship. First the instructor, then the wonderful worker, now the Redeemer. In the next woe, which is upon the Egyptian league, in chapters 30, in chapter 30, in uh, verses 18 onwards and 19, he introduces himself as the gracious one. So we read there, Therefore will Yahweh wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For Yahweh is a God of judgment, blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he shall answer thee. So you see another development in the name and the character of the great in create. He is now revealed as the gracious one. And see how beautifully out of every disaster Isaiah the prophet is bringing something for the learning and admonition of those who have ears to hear. So here he is as the gracious one. In the 31st uh, chapter, which moves on to the 32nd, where we have the woe upon the apostate alliance makers, in that chapter we are, uh, the, he reveals himself as the deliverer. So we have it in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 31. Turn ye unto me from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. And then shall the Assyrian fall with a sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword not of a mean man shall devour him. For he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. So there we have him as the great deliverer. And another aspect, of the character of the Father. He is the deliverer. And finally, in chapter 33, verses 13 to 17, he is the avenger of his people. Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. This is at the time when the uh, Assyrian, of course, was overthrown in the days of Hezekiah, but more completely in the day when Gog shall be overthrown, this will be the message that will be sent through from all, uh, sent to through all the world, 
You remember, of course, that when the Lord Jesus Christ is established in Jerusalem, the first thing that he will do after that will be to issue the ultimatum to the nations, calling upon them to submit. Here it is. Here's the ultimatum. Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath, taken, uh, hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppression, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. His place of defence shall be the munition of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king and his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off, or that is stretched right out. And so you see, he is revealed here as the avenger of his people. So that with every woe that was pronounced against the people of God, there was a compensating message of hope. And with every disaster that was poured out upon them, there was shown a further manifestation of Yahweh their God. So he is first of all the instructor, then the wonderful worker, then the Redeemer, then the Gracious One, then the Deliverer, and finally the Avenger. And you know, in a sense, that's how he appears unto us, isn't it? He first of all instructs. There is the wonderful work of redemption in baptism. He becomes the Redeemer to us. We feel the graciousness of his presence in our life. He delivers us in the age to come and finally will avenge us. And they are the principles that are, that are established throughout these woes that are poured out upon contemporary Israel at that time. Looking again at this section here as we've got it, I think you are better with the six woes on contemporary Israel. And this last one here would be far better if it was set down as the great final establishment of the kingdom because that's in fact what it is though you have in chapter 33 though you have the Lord Jesus Christ established in Zion and in the land he's only there in that part of the land at that time but when the judgment is poured out upon Idumea in chapters 34 and chapter 35 you'll have the extension of that kingdom throughout every part of the earth and as I said before the wild beasts now find a place of refuge and they are tamed and established in their own land. They are tamed and established in their own land. Much the same as you read it prophetically in the book of Daniel, these words. In Daniel chapter... Where? Daniel chapter 7, I should know it off by heart. In Daniel chapter 7, and in verse 11, I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. This is the fourth beast, politically and prophetically, Edom. I beheld them because of the voice of the great words that the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame complete destruction. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, which Brother Thomas aligns as a thousand years. So you see, here were certain beasts that are going to survive into the millennium, and they're going to be given their places in the millennium. These are individual nations. In the term terminology of prophecy, they are wild beasts, and they're going to find their place in the kingdom of God. Whilst the fourth beast of earth which really, prophetically, is Edom, that fourth beast will be completely and utterly destroyed. But the rest of the beasts, they will find a place therein. Individual nations will find a place in the kingdom of God. And that is what we are being told in Isaiah 34 and 35. Under the, under the symbol of the wild beasts and birds of the field. 
And you will find that the very description that is given concerning the, the land of Edom in those chapters answers to the description that is given to Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation. It's going to be, a, it's going to be given over to utter destruction. But then, of course, as far as that is concerned, it's going to blossom as the rose and there is going to be established in it various nations of the age to come. Just on that theme, which is a very, very favorable, favorable theme as far as I would concern, you know, Yahweh made a covenant with Noah, didn't he? He made a covenant with Noah. But when you look at the passages in Genesis, you find that he not only made the covenant with Noah and his family, but he made the covenant of the rainbow with every one of the beasts that were in that ark. You read and see if that's not the case. That that rainbow, arcing above, not only made a covenant with Noah and his family, but with every beast and bird that was in that ark. In other words, those beasts and birds there, as you have it in Genesis chapter 1, represent the nation at large. That's why to Israel the beasts and birds were classified into clean and unclean beasts and birds. And the nations that, uh, around us are clean and unclean beasts and birds. But in the kingdom of God they're going to be all tamed and they're going to be changed and they're going to be given a place in the kingdom of God. The nations round about, even Australians are going to get there I think. So there we have the, uh, the section as far as the six ways on the land are concerned. We pass over that section now. Uh, be before doing so, however, one little verse I'd like to draw your attention to. And that's in chapter 35 and at verse 7. This is a beautiful verse. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass and reeds and rushes, and an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for these. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. It really means straying men, being fools, will be not permitted therein. No fool will be there. Only those who are prepared to submit to the ways of Yahweh will find a place on that highway that will lead, of course, to uh, the uh, temple in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 7. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. The revised version margin renders that the mirage, the mirage shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. The mirage. You know, you talk to your neighbours about the truth. You say, Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to save this world from its own folly. He's going to establish the kingdom upon this earth and he's going to bring peace and righteousness before all mankind. And they don't believe it. They think it's folly. They tell you that. They believe it's a mirage. You know what a mirage is? Well, I have travelled across the Malabar Plain which stretches from Adelaide across to Perth. I've been in the train with a friend of mine. I will remember the occasion. And as we looked out at the side of the train as we we're going along, we saw a beautiful view there. There was, there was a hills and there was, a, there was water, there were palm trees. And he remarked to me what a beautiful view that was. I said, yes, it is a beautiful view, but it doesn't exist. He says, what do you mean? I said, you watch that and that will travel along with the train. And so it did. But it was a very, very graphic mirage that was of bulls and trees and, and uh, hills. And you know, I suppose if we were starving of thirst, but you don't starve of thirst, you die of thirst. <laughs> anyway, whatever you do with thirst, and you saw that in the distance, you would make your way there to drink that water, but it doesn't exist. It's a mirage. And it doesn't exist. And yet when we were going across, crossing that train on that very bright, shining day, that mirage was there and it was very, very vivid. Very vivid indeed. You see mirages upon a road, and as you're travelling along, of course, they recede in the distance. It looks as though it's water, and it recedes as you...
you see mirages upon a road and as you're travelling along of course they recede in the distance it looks as though it's water and it recedes as you come along but this was a really uh, vivid mirage a mirage of lakes and trees and hills which didn't exist now you see the mirage as we read it here shall become a pool it'll become the reality what the people outside say is a mirage when they say look it won't happen when perhaps in your own thought you think, well, will it really happen? That mirage is going to become a pull. That's going to become the reality in the earth. And people are going to see that for what it is, the re real thing, when the Lord Jesus Christ is here. And then, you see, the mirage will become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. All the frustrations and the evils of today gone for good. All the problems that rack our mind at the present time and we wonder how we're going to surmount them, finished. There shall be songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And that ends that section of Isaiah's prophecy. And the next section of Isaiah's prophecy, as you see, the prophet now becomes an historian. And he tells us all about what happened to Hezekiah and how that Rabshakeh came down and how those very prophecies that he had predicted in those earlier chapters now are going to be vindicated in the events that were taking, going to take place then. So that anyone that had ears to hear could see in the developments, the historical developments at that time, a foreshadowing of the grand purpose of God, which is the real theme of Isaiah's prophecy. Because Isaiah is not so much concerned with what happened in the days of Hezekiah and Sennacherib, there are only types, really, of the coming glory that's going to be manifested in this earth. And that's what his mind was upon. People that take the prophecy of Isaiah, outside people that may make commentaries upon it, will see that as far as Hezekiah was concerned, that this was the vindication of Isaiah's prophecies by no means. And Isaiah's been very, very careful to make that perfectly clear that that is not the case. Isaiah is constantly interwoven into his narrative statements concerning the future that had no parallel in the days of Isaiah the prophet. It was only a shadow for uh, a shadowing forth of that reality that's going to be established in the earth. And so you see in chapters 36 to the end of chapter 39, uh, 39 to the end of that section, the prophet now becomes a, an historian. And that section of his history is conveniently placed in the proper place it should be found as far as his prophecy is concerned. Because the previous chapters have all pronounced the failure of Israel and the crisis that's going to fall upon them. After he has set forth this historical uh, uh, interlude, he then moves on to the work of redemption in Christ Jesus and the work of Yahweh in his final consummation. So you see, all that we have considered up to this point of time had a shadowy, had a shadowy fulfillment in the work of Hezekiah and in the attack of Sennacherib. Whilst the final chapters, at this particular point, takes us on to personal redemption and final glory. So you see, exactly in the right position, Hezekiah, the details concerning Hezekiah are set forth and Isaiah the prophet <coughs> becomes an historian. There was two crises in his day. One was a personal one and the other was a political one. Israel was threatened by Assyria that swept down upon the land. The northern kingdom or the northern section of the kingdom went into captivity. And now Judah was under attack. And as far as that is concerned, there was this extreme political 
problem that faced that nation at that time and divided the nation. It came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defence cities of Judah and took them. So the crisis was very, 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 very extreme. City after city after city has fallen to the Assyrian until Jerusalem remains almost on its own, isolated, and the Assyrian has declared his intention of attacking that city as well. And ultimately, he took Lachish, the great fort that led the way right to the centre of Jerusalem. Lachish fell, and when Lachish fell, Jerusalem remained on its own to defend itself against the forces of the Assyrian that had defeated every other nation that had uh, engaged in itself in attack at that time. And then at the same time, there was a personal problem because the king himself became sick and he was sick unto death. We read of that in verse 38. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. And Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto Yahweh. Hezekiah was passed down by the realisation that he was going to die. It afflicted him greatly. Not that he worried about death, I don't believe. I don't think death would worry a man like Hezekiah. Why should it? It's only a sleep. It's a relief from suffering. Why should he be concerned about death? But what Hezekiah realised at that particular time, that there was something facing him that was worse than death. That in spite of all his greatness and all his labour and all his faith, he had failed Yahweh. He realised that. He had not married to that point of time. He had been so busy with the affairs of state so busy perhaps setting in order the worship at that particular time that he had not married and there was no heir to the kingdom there was no heir to the throne of David and the promise of David was now in danger of failing because of the omission of this man Hezekiah to carry out what he should have carried out in view of the promise made unto David that rested upon him and therefore you see there was a very great problem as far as he was concerned he's going to die and there's no hope of him redeeming the, himself as far as that is concerned. And in this particular time, of course, he prayed unto the Father, and as we know, there was an extension uh, given unto him of uh, 15 years of life. And during that extension of life, he married a woman by the name of Hepzibah. You read of this in the second of Kings, chapter 21, how he married Hepzibah. And as far as the marriage was concerned, there was fruit to, to the glory of Yahweh in this regard that he did have children. He had at least one son. The son did not turn out very, very good except in the latter time of his life. His name is Manasseh. But even upon that basis, we seem to have a picture in the prophecy of Isaiah because in the 62nd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy and uh, at verse 4, we have uh, these words, Thou shalt no more be called forsaken, neither shalt thy land any more be called desolate, but thou shalt be called Hepzibah, my delight is in her, and thy land Beulah married, for Yahweh delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, and as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. And so he was given this extension of life and he thanks his God in the 38th chapter of his prophecy. And he says in verse 20, Yahweh was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of Yahweh. We will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of Yahweh. And apparently he gathered together certain psalms. These we believe are called the Psalms of Degrees. They are found from uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And those psalms commemorate the principles that faced him in this, this dual crisis which he faced at that particular time. 
Beautiful psalms they are, the psalms of degrees. The word degrees means going up. And they say that when the Jewish people used to go out to Jerusalem, it was these songs of degrees that they would chant at that particular time as they went up to Jerusalem. And they used to come to a place called Kirjath Jerem, where from whence you could see the temple on the top of the hill ahead of them, on the top of Zion. And when they came to that spot, they would bow the knee, they would pray unto, unto Yahweh, and then they would proceed on the way upwards to Jerusalem, singing these songs of degrees. Whether that be so or not, these songs apparently were songs that were not composed by Hezekiah, but gathered together by Hezekiah. He may have composed some of them, but some of them are songs of David. But he used those because they were appropriate to the circumstances of his own experience. The same as we can turn to the Psalms, and we can use those Psalms as appropriate to our experience, whatever our circumstances of life might be. In the Psalm 121, we have a typical example of this, which is a very, very beautiful principle that we have in this section of the Psalms. Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. I lift up mine eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. And the answer come, my help cometh from Yahweh, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. So you see, the psalmist here, and in this case Hezekiah, lifts his eyes up unto the hills. He sees those hills covered with the forces of the Assyrian. He sees the tents of Sennacherib there, and they're clothing the hills that overshadow Jerusalem. Because the hills all overshadow Jerusalem, and to the northeastern section of the city, there is the great hill from whence the warriors from time immemorial attacked the city of Jerusalem. And they were from that, that point, that mountain there, able to look down into the city itself, over the walls and right into the city itself. And there Hezekiah from the, uh, the uh, city was able to look to those hills and see those hills clothed with the forces of the enemy. An enemy that had destroyed every other city it had attacked. An enemy that had overthrown Babylon, that had destroyed Ethiopia, that had destroyed Egypt, that had destroyed kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. An enemy that no other man was able to handle. And there Hezekiah sees it there. And he sees, to the hills I lift mine eyes. For whence cometh my aid? My aid cometh from Yahweh that made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved, he says to the people. He that keepeth thee does not suffer. Behold, he that keepeth Islam neither slumbers nor sleeps. Yahweh is my keeper. Yahweh is thy shade upon thy right hand. And by these words, you see, the, the prophet Isaiah, who was the real inspiration of that particular time, urging the king on to do the action that he, that he took at this time. Because at other times, Ezekiel was, intended, uh, was inclined to waver. But Isaiah never. And Isaiah was behind the king. And all that he did at that time, stimulating him, encouraging him, urging upon him the course that should be taken. And by the combined action of the king and the prophet, by the combined action of these people, these men, that made such a wonderful witness to the truth, a whole nation was galvanized into action. And you know, brethren and sisters, there was examples to that for us. Because it's what we do as far as the truth is concerned today that very often governs the destiny of an ecclesia. And we can personally, by our own endeavours, by our own faithful work within the compass of an ecclesia, help an ecclesia in times of difficulty and stress by putting our lot with the things of God and by our own efforts in a very humble way. We don't have to be upon a platform. We merely have to be earnest and keen in the things of God. There merely has to be on the part of humble brethren and sisters a determination to carry out the things of God that affects sisters, a determination to carry out the things of God that affects an ecclesia. You know, this is a wonderful thing, the power of example in every age. I know in my own ecclesia back home of some that are never near a platform, 
but whose wonderful example and help has been a great stimulus in the work of the truth. I have known brethren in my life, older than me, who upon a platform, who really have never known much about Hebrew and Greek, but when it came to faithful witness of the things of God, they never had to speak. I've known brethren whose very presence has been an example and an exhortation, and their very presence there has stood for something, and that's a very, very great thing, because talk is cheap, and it's very, very difficult to maintain a consistent attitude toward the things of God when pressures are very, very difficult. And there have been men right down through the ages that have done that. And in my own life and experience, I have had the great privilege of being associated with people that have been like that and are there to encourage and help and stimulate at times when things are very, very difficult. That's what happened there. If only we had time to go through the, the chapters of Isaiah to show you the background of conditions at that particular time and against which these men had laboured. To take the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, for example, and the attitude that was adopted at that time by certain people. You see, some of them there, the, the, at the time when the nation was being challenged, look in verse 3, all thy rulers are fled together, they're bound by archers, all that are found in there are bound together, they fled from far, they're frozen, they're cowards, they're not prepared to stand up for the things of God. Not only that, we read further on in that same chapter that as far as the southern people are concerned, look in verse 12, In that day did Yahweh call to weeping and to mourning and to boldness and to girding with sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was the attitude that many were adopting when the enemy was at the gate. So some were cowards and others were fools acting in that fashion. And the voice of Isaiah said this, as far as that nation was concerned, in verse 11, Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool to hold it in, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. And so you see, there was the call of Isaiah, even at a time like that, that the nation should be stimulated to uh, set themselves up against the things that were challenging them on the basis of the word of God and on the basis of the conviction of Yahweh as the great help and the deliverer, such as we found in those various woes that were pronounced upon Israel. Now we... I suppose time's gone. There we come now, we've finished 39 chapters and we've only got another 22 chapters to do tomorrow. The only trouble is <laughs> the most important chapters, and as I said before, though these are very, very exciting, these are even more so, because they get a set before us, those chapters there, the supremacy of Yahweh, and this one, in, in, they're going to set before us these prophecies of redemption and consummation, which are divided into three sections the supremacy of Yahweh, the suffering servant of Yahweh, and the future glory of Yahweh. Now when you come to analyse the truth, that's the order in which we are drawn to the truth. First of all, the supremacy of Yahweh. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that God is. That's the first thing. He must be drawn to recognise the existence of God. And that word is there means he exists. God is. You know, in the 14th chapter of Numbers and verse 21, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. But there you've got those two little words, as in italics, which can be eliminated. Then we read, truly I live, and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Israel didn't realise that. They mouthed the name of Yahweh. They went and offered their sacrifices. There were their Levites. There were their priests. There was the tabernacle. They were going up there, but they didn't believe that God existed. They talked about God, but they didn't understand in the full measure of it that he was a living reality. 
and they didn't walk, as it were, with God, as did Enoch and Noah. And that was the unfortunate thing as far as Israel is concerned, and it can be our unfortunate lot to speak, lot, uh, uh, speak richly concerning God and his truth, and yet fail to comprehend the living reality of him. You know what Abraham was told, walk before me and be thou perfect. Grow up. Walk before me. You know what Jacob told his grandsons, my fathers walked before God. And that was a wonderful example. So you see, the first thing we must understand is the supremacy of Yahweh. And then when that is uh, realised, then we may be drawn to him by his suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that be the case, we are motivated by the future glory that will be established in this earth. And so our time having gone, really, we cannot develop that particular section now, can we? I wouldn't be very, very long at all, Stephen. I'm never very long. I'm a very conscientious speaker that never goes over his time except when it's absolutely necessary. And it's generally absolutely necessary, unfortunately. But I'm not going to go over my time at all. I'm just going to put these in order. And if there's one here that we can put down there, I think... I think we'd better leave it because, of course, you see, I get because this is what we've got to do. We won't have time to do it. So we will try and get this done tomorrow. But there we have uh, the various aspects of Yahweh, the supremacy of Yahweh in creative power, underived wisdom, in power, in unchallenged supremacy, as an object of worship, in his omniscience, in his ability to help, in his omnipresence and in his revelation. He is supreme. He's supreme in every way. And you know, the only way we can come to comp- comprehend that is by personal thought upon his supremacy. You won't get it merely by reading the Bible. You've got to read the Bible, but then you've got to sit down and think about these principles that you will find there. And you will find that in those sections of Isaiah, he challenges you with that possibility. So we'd better leave it there today, I think. And we will deal with the supremacy of Yahweh in the last 20 chapters, God willing, tomorrow.